This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. So I'd like now to introduce Professor Lori Oakes, who is Professor and Chair of UCSB's Department of Feminist Studies. Um, her areas of study are reproductive politics, the anthropology of health, medicine, and science, and feminist and community-based participatory research, areas in which she has published widely. And um, she is going to serve as our panel moderator. And before we begin, though, I do want to thank her for proposing uh, tonight's events for the Humanities in the Brain program. So Great. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So I would like to thank the IHC and also the Carsey Wolf Center for supporting us. Um, we came up with this idea as part of our UCSB uh, Health Medicine at Medicine and Healthcare uh, wor- Working Group, which is a group that we've gotten together on this campus. Zakia Luna is here, and other members of the working group are here because we want to be able to spark some discussions both on UCSB and in the community about issues around health and healthcare. So one of the things that I think is interesting, you just heard that some of my research interests are in health, but I think that for many of us that the issues that we were talking about here around memory, around uh, family care and support are close to our hearts too. So it's not just about research, but it's about our lived experience and our families and our friends. So um, what we had in mind with this panel is for each of the panels to say some remarks about how some of the issues in this film relate to their lives and or their research. So um, let me introduce each one of them, and then I'm going to ask them to uh, share some comments briefly, and then we'll open the floor open for questions. So first, um, this is Professor Patricia Cohen, who is recently retired history professor here at UCSB, and she is on the advisory board for the Parkinson's Association, and she is also someone who is here speaking as a community member who is a caregiver. Um, next, we have Professor Kenneth Kosick, who is a professor here at UCSB and the co-director of the Neuroscience Research Center. And he's somebody who is doing research specifically on Alzheimer's disease uh, with members around the world, right? Um, and next, we have Donna Beal, who I'm really glad could join us from the California Center, Central Chapter of the Alzheimer's Association. So she's somebody who's doing work in our local community to raise awareness uh, about Alzheimer's disease and and prevention and support. So, um, Donna, how about, would you like to be able to start? Sure. a few comments. I'm happy to start. Thank you so much. um, I am an alumni from UCSB, go Gauchos. And um, (laughs) this auditorium was not here when I was going to school here, and it feels very much like home, because I was a dramatic arts major. Um, So I apologize if my voice is a little too loud, but how do you watch that movie and not tear up a box of Kleenex? I don't know about you guys, right? Um, So my two-minute remarks, if you will. Uh, When I first started with the chapter about five years ago, one of the people that I know in the public health arena said, you've got to read this book, um, and handed me Still Alice. And it was right around the time that Lisa Genova uh, had finally gotten a publisher and had it out there, and um, it kind of became my first entree into Alzheimer's disease. Prior to that, I'd been doing a lot of work with lungs, um, asthma and COPD and that kind of stuff. I jumped from the lungs to the brain. Um, But truthfully, it really highlighted everything that we as an association do. Our 
job is to help caregivers navigate this journey, to find the moments of joy, to live in the moment with their loved ones, to learn never to argue with them, to learn all the things that you need to learn along this journey. And it is not an easy thing to learn. Um, it is very, very difficult for families to navigate. How do you provide care for someone um, who is living with dementia? And even though our name is the Alzheimer's Association, we actually do work with families who are caring for somebody with all types of dementia. So it's not just Alzheimer's. Great. Thanks so much. Yeah, so I'm uh, Ken Kosick, and I, um, uh, my relation to this uh, film is actually twofold. Um, I am a neurologist, and I care for Alzheimer patients, but I am primarily um, an Alzheimer researcher. And I think um, the hat perhaps I'll wear this evening is uh, more of the uh, scientist, because the research that we do is actually very much on familial Alzheimer's disease. Uh, we actually have done a lot of work on tracking down the very gene they talk about uh, in this film, the presenilin gene. Uh, my, I've, I personally and our team have been very interested in issues about genetics and who you tell and when you test and uh, the whole issue of um, the three children. One wanted to know, two wanted to know, one did not, one was positive. Uh, there are many fascinating ethical issues that arise uh, in settings like this. And of course, um, the whole condition of Alzheimer's itself and the deterioration you saw. Um, and, but from a scientific point of view, the underlying pathology, the uh, amyloid that was accumulating in the brain, these are all things that um, are, we're very, very much involved with in my lab and, um, uh, and part of a large community of researchers that are um, working to really uh, make a dent in this really terrible, terrible disease. Thanks so much. And I'm Pat Cohen, and I'm, as Laurie said, a member of the faculty who took retirement last year because I have a husband who has Parkinson's disease and dementia, and now his diagnosis is Lewy body dementia. It's a little different from Alzheimer's, but I got a copy of this film. I knew I couldn't come here for the full three hours or two hours or whatever you're spending here tonight, so I got a copy. And I watched the movie this evening with my husband, and that was an interesting experience. Mm. We talked about a number of the things in it that are similar to what we're experiencing and then other things that are different. Uh, it's a huge challenge. I'd just like to underscore what Alice says in that talk to the Alzheimer's Association where she says it's, it's really not suffering. You're not, you know, they don't want pity for, for actually suffering, but it's just the challenge, the sheer challenge of things that, that you can't control. Living in the present is a very good idea, except I was a busy professor living in the future, and I'm still living in the future. It's very hard for me to pull back and try to live day, one day at a time. And just, I mean, it's just a real clash of cultures, which you see in this film, too. A husband who's on a fast-track career with a great job offer and you know, wants to do so much, and he actually makes the choice to do that because he has this daughter who's willing to step in and, and help out, too. But it's just, it's, it's a roller coaster, and the most important thing that I ever did in the last 10 years I've been dealing with this was get involved in the Parkinson's Association that has a caregiver's support group that meets once a week. And I'm in there with people who know exactly what I'm doing, what I'm dealing with. And no one else does. You know, No, no one else really understands. And it's just a lifesaver. Great. Great. Thank you so much.
three very different perspectives. And so we'd like to open the floor up for any questions or comments if you'd like to direct to any of the panelists specifically or if you have a comment about the film more generally. And we have some people with microphones, so there are folks over here. Thank you. I just have a question of how often this happens in the the public. I, I just this is so seems so rare, but is this often? Because I do know someone right now in Santa Barbara that's just had a diagnosis, and same thing. And I just wasn't aware that it was out there. So, could you comment as to how common this is? Yes. Um, so. It is important to, uh, your, your comments are very um, germane because the face of Alzheimer's disease is not always someone who's elderly. And um, those uh, individuals that have heart condition are rare. We generally say it's about 1% of all people with Alzheimer's disease. Um, it's probably even less than that. It's at the most 1%. So it is, it's exceedingly rare to find people with these mutations it's a little bit more common, but not much, to find people that are under 65 that have Alzheimer's, whether you find the mutation or not. So um, it is uh, something that um, we, when they have a mutation, we can attribute the disease to that mutation. But in the remaining 99%, um, we really don't know the cause at all. I just wanted to share a personal story. Uh, when I was uh, taking care of my mother-in-law that had Alzheimer's, um, I am a physician and I even got surprised. She would have moments where she was completely confused, not recognize me at all. And uh, then one day uh, when I was taking care of her, she completely came back, co- completely normal and remembered things for I would say perhaps five to six minutes, and those minutes uh, would come and go occasionally, but when they were there, um, it would be so uh, incredible. It was like the person was back, uh, and uh, like you say, is never judge a person that has dementia because they really don't know what they are doing. I think that kind of... Um that your observation is, is really good. Uh, I think we see that in the film, too, where even at the very end, when her daughter reads her this piece, she still had this understanding and was able, hardly verbal at all at that point, but yet knew, had some understanding of what her daughter was saying. Uh, there is this cyclical behavior in Alzheimer's where a person can actually spend a few minutes really with it and then out of it. Sometimes it lasts for a few minutes, can last for a few hours, it's another aspect of the disease that is very poorly understood. And I would add to that that it's also an aspect of the disease that can be tremendously overwhelming and unbelievably frustrating for caregivers because they just cannot understand why, and this is the story we always say, they, the, their, their loved one cannot remember that they just ate breakfast, but they can tell you exactly what they wore, exactly where they were, and exactly what the room smelled like 40 years ago on their wedding day. And that is unbelievably frustrating to understand. 
And even when you do understand it, it's really frustrating because <laughs> if the person can be good part of the time in the parts of the time when the person is completely out to lunch, you are angry about that. And you, you can't be angry about that because the person can't help it. But, uh, mm-hmm. but that stark contrast that can shift very quickly, um, very hard to take. One thing I didn't see in Alice was paranoia. She could be frightened or disoriented, but she never felt like someone was trying to hurt her or do anything like that. My mother was an Alzheimer's victim, and uh, she thought her son-in-law was trying to kill her. My sister was trying to take all the money out of her checking account, and I don't know if that's normal or that's an abnormal thing? So I think I'll try and field that one. Fill in anything you want. Um, If you've seen one person with dementia, you've seen exactly one person with dementia. It is very personalized. It is very unique to the individual. And it's based on, as Alice says in the movie, what makes you you are the things that have... are your memories. And just kind of your personality and who you are gets heightened a lot of times with the disease. But again, not everyone is going to have every one of the types of behaviors that can happen in dementia. Paranoia is one of those types of behaviors. Not everyone will exhibit that. However, it is, it is quite common. Uh, and uh, you're right, she did not display it, but I would say a very high percentage of patients do have paranoia. Um, it's, it's a very interesting phenomena that what is the relationship to the personality that emerges when a person gets Alzheimer's compared to the pre-morbid personality. Um, you know, I've seen individuals with Alzheimer's, you know, very sweet guy, takes, very loving, taking care of people, and then has Alzheimer's and is destroying the furniture in his room and is full of anger. It's really hard to know... Uh, exactly what aspects of the personality are going to emerge when a person gets Alzheimer's disease. Paranoia is particularly common because it's, you can lose things so easily, and uh, then people think, oh, they must have been stolen. Uh, so it's really, uh, it goes together with the memory loss. So paranoia sort of fits, fits, and that's part of the reason why it does emerge. It's interesting she didn't have it. Um, I just wanted to maybe think about also the the specificity of the condition and how every case is very unique in relation to the question of sort of the prevalence of this particular kind of Alzheimer's that came up earlier um, and kind of ask anybody who would want to field it about the stakes of choosing that kind of incredibly rare, specific sort of condition to represent filmically. Um, sort of what's at stake in using a really, really, really singular outlier case um, to unfold this narrative um, about Alzheimer's and anybody who would want to speak to that, but maybe Laurie in particular, knowing something of your work, um, the sort of question of what's at stake when a particular condition is represented that way. Right. Thank you. Well, I think that we could take the positive view and say that... um, having this representation opens up discussion, right, and perhaps leads people to want to learn more about Alzheimer's. 
Um, of course, we could also take the perspective that watching a younger person, uh, in this case an actress that's very well known, might be more palatable to many audiences than watching the older type of person who is experiencing um, Alzheimer's. So there's that bit of a Hollywood part that I would be critical of, but then on the other hand, I would also say that maybe that is the strategy that is a good one to open up the door for more people to learn about this and for to have audiences like this here. You know, I, I, I would say that um, in reading reviews of this movie and uh, even to some extent my own opinion, um, yeah. I think they've made Alzheimer's look a little too good. Uh, they, it's, um, she's very beautiful, she's very young, and um, there's... The, the scenes in which there is really the kinds of um, real humiliation and all the other things that go often with Alzheimer's are often glossed over here. Uh, and I think this, the, the, her youthfulness is, is part of that. There are some very good movies about Alzheimer's where there's an older person who gets it. One is called Iris, about the writer Iris Murdoch. Another one is called Away From Her. Those are superb uh, treatments of an older person with Alzheimer's. So I have a question about the relationship between LDL cholesterol and statins and the protective effect of LDL cholesterol. I understand the brain is about 40% LDL cholesterol. So we know that uh, when your lipid profile is uh, not normal, whether it's LDL or HDL or any of the components in a lipid profile, your risk for Alzheimer's goes up. We don't fully understand the relationship between the lipid profile and Alzheimer's, but the statistical association is there for sure. Hi, this was just a comment actually um, to say that for those of you that or want to see a bit more depth than the movie provides, as good as the movie is. The book does have some really powerful scenes in which the, I guess, the humiliation, and particularly in the academic context, um, is much more apparent. For example, what happens when you go to uh, a talk in your department and you don't understand what's going on. And so I think it's also interesting what parts they took out to make it more palatable, that maybe... You know, maybe a lot of people wouldn't really get this sort of academic context, you know, so maybe they wanted to make it, you know, a bit more mainstream in that sense. But I think it's also, yeah, like the reality of if we know people with Alzheimer's or other dementia, like the bathroom and the sort of humiliation of what it means when someone realizes that they're peeing on themselves yeah. and that they need to have their child or grandchild take care of them. Um, and that's just, you know, we get a snippet of that, and I think that's um, one of the challenges to, you know, having the Hollywood sort of version that you can show at film festivals. But, yeah, thanks for that point. Thank you very much. I have a question about current treatment or future new treatments that might be coming out on Alzheimer's. So there are um, a number of clinical trials going on right now. The one, uh, the trials that are getting the most attention are to use an antibody that's given peripherally, given into the bloodstream, that will go into the brain and clean up the amyloid. And those, um, those uh, trials have had um, 
a very modest, if any, success so far. Uh, I even hate to use the word success. They've had a little bit of a signal that maybe they're working a little bit, but uh, those are very early bits of information. We just don't know the results yet for those trials. They're being given to people that have the very earliest stages of the disease. Um, to treat later stages of the disease is really um, very, very difficult, and we don't have a lot of um, uh, research or clinical trials going on for the later stages. There's someone here. I, I, I have a question. Uh, Pat mentioned Lewy body disease, and and I'm uh, my husband uh, has been uh, diagnosed with that, and uh, and I certainly like to hear uh, your description of that or. A helpful description of that. No, I don't know. I mean, I haven't. You could probably speak to that too. I mean, I live with the one unique person I know who has it, and uh, it's an outgrowth of Parkinson's. He's a person who'd had Parkinson's disease for about 20 years and got progressively more had more difficulty with cognitive functioning, and and a lot of the typical behavior of Lewy body disease about hallucinations and delusions. He had had that earlier too, and it's exacerbated by the medications that they give you for Parkinson's. So it's all, you know, it's a challenge just to get the medical regime under control in some useful way. Um, but it's, uh, I don't know, I guess there are several hallmarks of it, and one is the hallucinations and delusions, and another is uh, it, it, cognitive deficits that aren't pervasive and, and as, uh, as totalizing as I think Alzheimer's can be in its end stages, but where, say, a whole function like spatial relations disappears or ability to deal with numbers just goes. And the person can be perfectly operative in many other ways, and then suddenly you hit this blank spot in the brain, a particular function that's just been hollowed out and is gone, I guess. Right. The, um, so Lewy body disease, and I think that's a great explanation of it uh, clinically, the way it appears. Uh, so I'll say a word about what's going on in the brain, it's um, uh, clinically it can sometimes be a little hard to distinguish from Alzheimer's, uh, except in those cases where it begin the Lewy body disease begins with Parkinson's and then extends and starts to lead to uh, uh, dementia, because uh, there is this relationship to Parkinson's. But Lewy body disease can begin sometimes without any Parkinsonian mm-hmm. symptoms, and then it gets very tricky until you examine the brain pathologically. And then they're very, very different diseases. You've probably heard the term neurofibrillary tangle. That is what we see in the Alzheimer brain. It's made up of a protein called tau. In Lewy body disease, there's another um, term that's used for what we see under the microscope. It's called a Lewy body. And uh, it's made up of a different protein called synuclein. So pathologically, they're quite different. Clinically, they can be a little blurred. Yeah, I think I have a along the similar um, question about the genetic correlation. In the in the movie, it seemed like it was genetic, but that was very a very specific type. So I'm just curious. I have a, my grandma has uh, Alzheimer's, so I'm just curious about how genetic and how common those symptoms come up within a family. Yeah. So if you have one of the rare mutations, as we mentioned the, from the other gentleman, about one percent of people with Alzheimer's, if you have one of those mutations, those are bad mutations. They're called highly penetrant. It means you have the mutation, 
you get the disease. That's why the doctor told the daughter she's going to inevitably get it. Um, but the, uh, but I'm getting the impression that perhaps in your family the onset of the disease was later, perhaps uh, not so early. So you could ask the question, what is a person's genetic risk if they don't have one of these really, really bad genes that's uh, causing Alzheimer's at age 50? And if you have a first-degree relative with Alzheimer's, either a parent or a sibling, your risk does indeed go up, but it doesn't go up by a whole lot. There's a, there's a slight increase in your genetic risk. We don't know the genes that are causing that, but uh, there is a little bit of a risk. There's a question. Uh, this will be our, our final question. Um, have there been any um, <clears throat> findings that there's a correlation between uh, Down syndrome and Alzheimer's? So the, the question is a correlation uh, between Down syndrome and Alzheimer's. Here, that's a very strong correlation. In fact, there we even believe that we have um, a mechanism. Um, what, what you said is absolutely true. When Down syndrome individuals get up in years, they inevitably develop plaques and tangles in their brain. And the reason they do, as you know, Down syndrome has what's um, called trisomy 21. It means they have an extra copy of a chromosome. And on that chromosome that's triplicated in Down syndrome is the gene for the amyloid. So they're making too much of it, and they inevitably get Alzheimer's. Okay. So um, we're out of time. I, again, want to thank everyone who made this event possible, and thank you all for being here. Our panelists have been fabulous tonight. Thank you all for your insights after the time. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.